For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. So this evening now, we're continuing our work through Revelation chapter 11 and this uh, literary parenthesis that lies between the blast of the sixth and seventh trumpets in the cycle of the trumpets. If you remember, we're in the cycle of trumpets. It's been a little while since we've been in this text together. And in the cycles, in each one of these cycles, but here uh, in particular, in the cycle of trumpets, there is a literary pause. There's a literary parenthesis between the blast of the sixth and seventh trumpets in the same way that there was a parenthesis or a pause between the sixth and the seventh seal. And uh, in that pause, uh, the pause is intended to communicate to us something. It's intended to picture something for us. And in this particular case, it's intended to give us a picture of the church. Now, in consideration of these cycles, first the cycle of seals, now the cycle of trumpets, first the cycle of the seven churches, then the cycle of seals, the cycle of trumpets, we have discussed that these cycles are essentially parallel to one another, essentially different perspectives on the same period of time. They each cover the same period of time between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, during each one of these cycles now, we have observed an increasing urgency in the cycle, an increasing frequency to the judgments we see poured out there, an increasing severity as those judgments are being poured out. And that increasing urgency, that increasing severity, that increasing frequency has the effect, or it's supposed to have the effect of pressing us more and more against the end of the age. These things ramp up, if you will, until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they reach their apex. They reach their climax just before the coming, the return of the Lord. And it's here in this increasing frequency, this increasing urgency, that we get the term progressive parallelism to describe the structure of the book. There's a parallelism to each of these cycles, each cycle covering the same period of time. But now with this increasing urgency in each one of these cycles, there is a progression of that parallelism parallelism toward the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ. And although that period of time under the purview of these cycles has now lasted more than 2,000 years, what does that teach the church? It teaches the church to be watchful, teaches the church to be um, prepared for the end, to be an eagerly waiting people, uh, waiting with a sense of urgency, as it were, until the return of Jesus Christ, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Uh, We're to be on watch, if you will. And every generation of the church has always been in that circumstance, right? The disciples in the first century were waiting with an expectancy that the Lord Jesus Christ could return at any time. Um, We are to wait with this expectancy that the Lord Jesus Christ could return at any time. Now, it's during these cycles and that period associated with these last days, that time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ, it's during these cycles that we're not given here a, a literal or physical depiction of future events, but rather we're shown through these pictures given to us in these cycles, we're shown spiritual realities, right? Spiritual realities that lie behind those physical or temporal patterns that were typological of this age. And there's much of the Bible that's communicated in that way. So our brother was talking about this morning in the book of Joshua. Uh, we've learned that much of that Old Testament history, if you will, is typological. Those things point to their fulfillment at the end of the, at the end of the age. They point forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the same way, much of that typological history of Israel, for example, points us forward. Much, much of the uh, these things are typological, pointing us forward or pointing us to spiritual realities that sit behind that history, that sit behind that ty- typology. Uh, these are depictions, if you will, that depict, they picture patterns. Those patterns concerning two basic things. One, the outpouring of God's eschatological or end times judgments upon unbelieving earth dwellers, and two, a brief picture of the church as the preserved and protected people of God. We see behind those depictions in the cycles, a picture of God's 
outpouring, God outpouring or pouring out his judgments upon unbelievers. And then now in chapter 11, a brief picture of the church. In chapter 11, that picture of the church is designed to show the church in her worship and in her witness. The two things that we are to sustain on this earth until Christ comes back, the worship of God's people and her witness as the people of God, her witness for Jesus Christ. Now, if you think with me about that, beginning in verses one and two, again, we see this picture of the church. In verses one and two here in Revelation chapter 11, God has measured off and sealed his people. Verse one, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise, measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles. They will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So God is measuring off, bounding off, if you will, uh, putting a boundary around his people, making a distinction between those who are his people who worship inside the most holy place and that by virtue of their union with Jesus Christ and then those apostates, those false professors who trample the courts and the holy city outside. As we've discussed already in, in Revelation chapter 11, I believe that's a picture of the modern church, right? Those genuine Christians who by virtue of their union with the Lord Jesus Christ that worship behind the veil, as it were, in the most holy place, and then those who are on the outside, those who are trampling the courts underfoot. They're still in the courts, if you will, but they're outside the most holy place. They're trampling the holy city underfoot. And that's what's going on, if you will, in the world today. You have true worship. You have the true people of God who are worshiping in the the power of the Spirit, uh, the power of the Spirit, Uh, worshiping in truth. And you have those outside who are trampling the courts underfoot, those outside who are not worshiping in spirit and in truth, uh, those who are not the people of God, those apostates, false professors who are, again, trampling the courts. It's, It's in this context and in that holy place, if you will, that God then empowers and enables his witnesses, his martyroi his martyrs, his witnesses by his spirit. Uh, These martyrs, those willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are his witnesses, these are the sons of oil. They are the lights atop the lampstand that shine as lights in a dark place. They are the ones who witness for Christ and they witness for Christ as a part of a rich heritage. They are not upstarts in God's redemptive plans and purposes. They follow in a pattern that's been established in the Old Testament and now in the New of prophets that have gone before them. They follow a pattern established by their forebears. They, if you recognize that in the text, they go forth in the spirit and in the power of Moses, in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, Jeremiah, and now John himself is God's eschatological prophet. And again, as we've seen, these two witnesses going forth in the spirit and in the power of Moses and Elijah, they are a picture, if you will, of the invincible and victorious church. The church protected, preserved by God throughout the time of her witness on the earth uh, and God protecting them until their witness is done. The time of her testimony is the time of the Gentiles, that time that the Gentiles trample the courts underfoot, 42 months, if you will, 1,260 days, that number again that is um, reminiscent of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 7, and the coming end of the age, that number that signifies the last week, if you will, in redemptive history. They witness for the Lord Jesus Christ during that time, that time of the Gentiles. It's also a time period in which their witness as the people of God has legal implications for the wicked who reject their testimony. In other words, in the Old Testament law, every matter was established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's why there's two witnesses here in Revelation chapter 11. This is being established not on the testimony of one witness, but on the testimony of two witnesses, the witness of scripture, the witness of God himself, the witness of Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's on the basis of these witnesses that God's judgments against the wicked are established. And it's a period that is described in terms that connect it to the prophecy of Daniel and that last symbolic week of human history. So now as we come to 11, chapter 11, verse 7, chapter 11, verse 7 now brings us to the end then of the church's witness for Christ upon the earth, the very end of that witness. And although we're considering realities now that are 
typical of this entire period, the parallelism here is once again pressing us with an increasing urgency against the time of the end. And what we see then in this picture of the church is the church's witness throughout the age coming to climax, coming to apex just before the sounding or the blast of the seventh trumpet, just before the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age to judge the world. Verse seven, and describing these two witnesses, when they finish their testimony, verse seven, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. The beast will overcome them and kill them. In verse eight, their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. We've already done some work in these verses, if you remember some of that. That great city, spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, is a reference to Jerusalem, where our Lord, it's the city where our Lord was crucified. That's amazing, and it's interesting that that great city, Jerusalem, where our Lord was crucified, is described as Sodom and as Egypt. In other words, that goes back to the beginning of chapter 11, where that great city is now being trampled underfoot by the nations, right? By the nations. The outer courts trampled underfoot by the nations. Where are God's people? God's people are worshiping in the naos. They're worshiping in the most holy place, behind the veil, as it were, in the very presence of God. This, the city, the courts have been given over to the nations are being trampled underfoot. So this city now, once the great city of God, now the city of the Gentiles, the city of the nations. It's um, interesting how this parallels our work in Romans 11 this morning. Now in Romans 11, we took a look at that example from Galatians chapter four of how the city of Jerusalem has now been turned over to Ishmaelites. A city, the city of God, now been given over as Sodom and as Egypt. Now, again, I believe this is a reference to false religion, um, synagogues of Satan, if you will. It's a picture of the suffering of God's people at the hands of those who profess to be God's people. Here you have God empowering his witnesses to go into that city, as it were, now called Sodom and Egypt, and preach the gospel to those people who are trampling the city underfoot. The bottom line is this. This is a picture of the church militant in her witness upon the earth. The church goes out in the power and spirit that God supplies. They go out in the power and spirit of Old Testament prophets before them, and they witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in hostile territory. Territory that has been taken over by the nations, taken over by the lost, taken over by persecuting lost people. God's Old Testament prophets were God's prosecuting attorneys against the idolatry of Israel. And not unlike the difficult ministry given to those Old Testament prophets, a ministry to the rebellious house of, of Israel, God's eschatological witnesses now preach to a world and even to a professing church that is in the grips of idolatry. And we are promised in this picture that it won't be easy. Won't be easy. We are bearing witness in a world that hates Jesus Christ hates the message of the gospel. We're witnessing in a world that lies under the judgment of God for their rebellion against him. And I remember reminded in that of several occasions in which the Lord was speaking to his disciples, right? In, in John chapter seven, verse seven, the Lord told his disciples that the world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. The world hates him because he testifies against it. In John chapter 15, verse 18, the Lord says to his disciples in the upper room, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Lord says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. That's the mission of the church. Mission of the church is to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. The mission of the church is to preach the gospel. But we're to preach that gospel in a world that hates him in a world that will hate us because it hated him, in a world that is hostile to the gospel. That is 
That's the great commission, brothers and sisters. We have the gospel, the everlasting gospel to preach, and that gospel is going to be preached in hostile territory. So when we get here now to Revelation chapter 11, and we see a picture of that, we see God's witnesses prepared, supplied by his spirit to witness for him, going into the courts, going into that city, which is now called Sodom and Egypt, and preaching the gospel to unbelieving earth dwellers. Now, these things they are going to do to you, the Lord says, because you bear witness for him. You are his martyroi. You are his martyrs, his witnesses. That Greek word meaning witness it also does double service here because those witnesses for Jesus Christ need to be prepared to die for their witness for Jesus Christ. And in this, bearing witness for him, this statement in verse 7, verse 8, becomes an echo, if you will, of Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. If you remember when we were in chapter 6, we were introduced to the martyrs that were under the altar of incense uh, before the Lord. And in verse 9, John recounts, when he opened the fifth seal, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. In other words, these are witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 10, they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then in verse 11, a white robe was given to each one of them. And it was said to them, they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. If you remember our work through Revelation chapter six there, Right? We, we were given a picture of the church on earth, the church militant arrayed in battle, as it were, on the earth. And then we were given a picture of the church in heaven. Those saints, they were already in heaven, worshiping around the throne of God. And we were introduced there in Revelation chapter 6 to those martyred, slain saints under the altar of incense before the Lord, crying out, O Lord, holy and true, how long before you avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? Um, at that time, we saw those martyrs, if you will, as those who had been slain for their testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord promises them in verse 11, they would have to wait, if you will, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now here in Revelation chapter 11, in another cycle, depicting the same period of time, because of that progressive parallelism now pressing us against the end of the age, the time of their witness has come to an end, and these witnesses are martyred in the streets of Jerusalem, right? So to speak, spiritual Jerusalem. Martyred in that great city, which is now called Sodom and Egypt. And the number of those martyrs is completed. The number is completed. Their witness, if you will, in Revelation chapter 11 comes to an end as they're killed and their corpses lie in the street. Christians, brothers and sisters, have been persecuted and killed for their testimony throughout this age. Throughout this age. From the beginning, from the, the, the beginnings of the church at Pentecost. Until now, the church, the testimony, the witnesses of Lord Jesus Christ have been martyred. Throughout the time period, encapsulated by these cycles, martyrs have been killed for their testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the time of the church's tribulation, in other words. And that tribulation, the tribulation of, of the Lord's people, this time of testing in the churches, uh, in this period of the, the church's testing in the wilderness, that time, uh, there will come a point at which their number will be completed and their witness will come to an end upon the earth. And Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, directs us to consider that end. This is the end of their witness. Just before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the very end of the age and the blast of the seventh trumpet. Now, if you think about this with me, the people of God, the bride of Christ, are marked or characterized by multiple identifying qualities, right? She's characterized by her love for the Lord, her devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, She's characterized by her love for her devotion to the Lord's people. She's characterized by the Spirit's work within her, right? The fruits of the Spirit produced through her. She's characterized by her commitment to her adherence to the Word of God. She upholds the Word of God, the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. But the bride of Christ is also marked by or 
characterized by her commitment to his worship, upholding the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the bride of Christ is characterized or marked by her commitment to his witness. Not just his worship, but his witness. And her commitment, the church's, the true church's commitment to his witness will bear the fruit of persecution and suffering for the sake of his name. There is no way around it. There is no time of ease for the church. There is no point at time, point in time at which the church is at ease during this, this age. The church is going to face the persecution of a hostile world. Why? Because the church will witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. What is one of the ways that you can tell a true church from a false church? A true church lives as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. She will proclaim the gospel. And she'll proclaim the gospel not only within the four walls of that church, but to the Gentiles who are trampling the court underfoot outside. Okay? The church will witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that church opens her mouth as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said, she's going to bear those distinguishing marks in her body, on her back, if you will, just like the apostle Paul did. That's what inclined Paul to say, yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Why is that? It's because they open their mouth as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in hostile territory. Now, verse seven, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, out of the abyss, will make war against them, get this, will overcome them and will kill them. So think with me about verse seven. Those two witnesses, these two witnesses, these two witnesses are, as we've seen, the one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ characterized as two witnesses in demonstration of her compliance with the legal requirements of the law, they will finish, verse 7, their testimony of Jesus Christ. The end of their testimony is brought about by their death. It's brought about by their defeat. Verse 7, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, will overcome them. That's language of defeat there, and will kill them. Their testimony, the end of their testimony is brought about by their defeat and their death. Their defeat, their death, brings about the end of their testimony. This wicked world, under the sway of the evil one, attempts to silence their proclamation. Now, one of the things that this reveals, among several things, is this, that persecution against the Lord's church is going to continue to increase in frequency and in severity like birth pains upon a pregnant woman until there comes a point in time where the witness of the church is virtually silenced. That language there for overcoming them points to defeat. There's similar language in Daniel chapter 7 that points to their defeat. Daniel chapter 12 that points to their defeat just before the saints receive the kingdom. In other words, uh, these times will grow worse and worse and worse. Evil men and impostors will go worse and worse until it appears as though the church has been entirely defeated. And then the time of their witness will come to an end and the Lord Jesus Christ will return on the clouds of heaven. We see that first indicated in a vision given to the prophet Daniel. Turn back to Daniel chapter seven with me. And I wanna show this to you. Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel chapter seven, there's so many parallels here between obviously Revelation and Daniel. Revelation in many ways is a commentary on an exposition of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter seven, we see the beastly kingdoms of this world are defeated. If you've been through Daniel and you see the, the arrival of these beasts, these beastly kingdoms, well, the beastly kingdoms of this world are defeated. The beast is defeated. And the son of man ascends to heaven on the clouds, comes to the ancient of days to receive the everlasting kingdom. Right? The everlasting kingdom is established. The son of man receives the kingdom. Look at verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body. The visions of my head troubled me. And I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this, the truth of what Daniel was seeing. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. 
those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth, these four kingdoms. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Right? There is a kingdom that the saints are going to possess, and they're going to possess that ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, Daniel said, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, that fourth beast which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. This is this, uh, this fourth kingdom that has consumed the earth. Then verse 20, the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than its fellows. It had greater authority than the others. Verse 21, and I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. There's that language of defeat again, right? This horn was making war against them and conquering them. That's what that word prevailing means, conquering them. He conquered them, verse 22, until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints most high and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So think with me now, just before the time comes that the saints are to possess the kingdom, this horn makes war against them, prevails against them, prevails against them, overcomes them. You could say from the language of Revelation 11, defeats them until the Ancient of Days comes and a judgment is made in favor of the saints of the Lord Most High. Daniel 7 is a prophecy of this fourth beast, is a prophecy of the final kingdom on earth. It's the kingdom that exists now, brothers and sisters, that worldwide kingdom which will persecute God's people and even prevail against them. But their so-called defeat is swallowed up in victory. I want you to think about that picture for a moment and see if you recognize any connections there. Their so-called defeat is swallowed up in victory. They receive in their victory an everlasting kingdom and those who persecuted them are destroyed. Now, in Revelation 11, the apostle John sees the persecution and defeat of the two witnesses as this fulfillment, as a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Not merely there by a beast, but by the beast. And that beast referenced in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 7. We're going to see that explained in more detail as we work through Revelation 11 and Revelation 13 together. We're going to understand specifically who this beast is and how this uh, comes about at the end of the age. But here in Daniel 7, as Daniel refers to the persecution of God's people, here Daniel's referring to the persecution of God's people as God's people rather than in Revelation where John refers to the, the two witnesses. He sees two specific witnesses. In this account too, John's account refer, refers to the persecution and suffering of God's people in the last days as a characteristic mark of the bride of Christ as God's people in those last days. In other words, just like in Daniel chapter seven, the people of God suffer and are persecuted at the hands of the beast. In Revelation 11, God's people persecuted. They suffer at the hands of the beast. Now, this beast, the beast that rises out of the abyss in Revelation 11, this beast is ultimately behind every iteration of the pattern. That typological pattern that was established in the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, for example, and here at the end, that beast is behind every iteration of persecution and suffering and misery and woe that befalls the church in the time of her testing. Every amount of persecution, the beast is behind it all. Here at the end in Revelation 11 now, it's here in Revelation 11 that he enters the field though himself. He enters the field himself. John reminds us, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, that many antichrists have come. Those who deny the Son, deny the Father, they are antichrists. And John says that many antichrists have already come. They come, though, having already come, they come in anticipation of a final antichrist. They come in anticipation of a climax to the pattern 
of the apex of the pattern, the Antichrist that will come, the beast that will come, if you will, at the end of the age. Inspired by the dragon, which we're going to see in Revelation chapter 12, this beast makes war with the saints and overcomes them, just like Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. And he overcomes them until a judgment is made against him and he's destroyed with the brightness of the coming of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ destroys him with the brightness of his coming. Now, this account, Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 11, raises an important point, okay? Back in Revelation 11, raises an an important point. The death, the defeat and death of God's people, pictured here in Revelation 11, verses 7 through 10, that death gives way to triumph in verses 11 through 13. After three and a half days, verse 11, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet. Great fear fell upon all those who saw them. And they heard with a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In that same hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Victory, right? Victory. It's then that the seventh angel sounds the seventh trumpet and the Lord Jesus Christ comes to establish, consummate the kingdom, right? Their death, their defeat in verses seven to 10 is swallowed up. It gives way to triumph in verses 11 through 13. They see the gloating of their enemies in verses seven through 10, right? They're dancing in the streets, giving gifts to one another in verses seven to 10, we see the triumph of the church in verses 11 through 13. In other words, brothers and sisters, what do we take away from that? Suffering gives way to victory. Persecution gives way to glory. Difficulty, tribulation, trial gives way to victory, to triumph, to glory. The point is this. That pattern, a pattern established in the experience of God's Old Testament prophets, a pattern that is established in the experience of the Lord's church, is following the example of the Lord himself who bought her. It's an example, it's a pattern that we see in the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. His suffering gives way to final victory. His suffering gives way to victory. He suffers to enter his glory. The church suffers to enter her glory. Let me ask you this. When the Lord Jesus Christ suffered at Calvary, did his witness come to an end? No. Did his, was his witness silenced? No. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing in church history that a carpenter from Nazareth, if you will, could turn the world on its ear. That his death on a Roman cross at Calvary didn't mean the end of all that. It meant simply the beginning of all that. And through his own suffering, through his own persecution, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is preached to the ends of the earth. And countless multitudes have been saved and will be in heaven around the throne, palm branches in their hand, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Persecution, suffering gives way to great glory. We're to look at that example, brothers and sisters, as an encouragement to us when we suffer. Lest you become weary, lest you become discouraged in your own heart and soul, look to him who suffered such shame, such persecution, such hardship at the hands of wicked sinners, you look to him lest you become weary and discouraged in your own soul, right? Look to him for encouragement. His suffering gave way to victory. His witness did not come to an end. It continues. And brothers and sisters, your faithful witness upon your death does not come to an end either. (laughs) The faithfulness of these martyrs becomes a living testimony, a living testimony to suffer for the gospel, to die for the gospel is a living testimony. We must be prepared to sacrifice and to die for the proclamation of the gospel. We have to be faithful in it, willing to suffer, willing to be persecuted. 
willing to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to love the gospel, even to love their souls more than they do, love them enough to preach the gospel to them, even though they return persecution or hostility towards us. Brian Lifton, who is a historian, described Tertullian's account of the martyrdom of perpetual infelicity. This is a historical, historical account of um, two martyrs in the early church. Uh, Perpetua and Felicity. There's a lot of um, hagiography or legend that gets built up around some of these uh, old testimonies of early church martyrs. But I think you get the idea, right? Um, Perpetua and Felicity were thrown to the beast at Carthage in the amphitheater at Carthage in 203 AD. And Lifton says this, Tertullian wrote the account to glorify God before a watching world through the testimony of ultimate witness. Is the gospel truth, God's truth? Absolutely it is. And there have been countless martyrs who have gone to their deaths for the sake of a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Has the Lord Jesus Christ died for sinners? Yes, he has. And there are many who have gone to their deaths to give witness of that truth that others might be saved. Tertullian wrote the account, quote, to glorify God before a watching world through the testimony of ultimate witness. The early Christians understood that faithfulness unto death has the power to edify the church long after those ancient times have passed. The growth of the church has taken place in soil that is soaked in the blood of the martyrs. The lost, this lost world attempts to silence their witness. And brothers and sisters, we cannot allow that witness to be silenced. It would appear at the end of the age that they actually win. It's going to, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ says, when I return, will I even find faith on the earth? It appears as though the enemy is won, but that is not the case. Their apparent defeat is the moment of ultimate victory. Hegesippus uh, lived in the second century AD. In the fifth book of his memoirs, uh, quoted by Eusebius, he writes this, and I want to quote this at length. I think this is um, just an interesting account, but helpful to make the point. This is an account of James, the brother of the Lord who was martyred. James, the brother of the Lord, succeeded to the government of the church in conjunction with the apostles. He has been called the just by all from the time of our Savior to the present day. That's the extent so far of James's witness. For there were many that bore name of James when even many of the rulers believed there was a commotion among the Jews and scribes and Pharisees who said there was a danger that the whole people would be looking for Jesus as the Christ. Coming therefore in a body to James... They said to him, we entreat you, James, restrain the people. They are gone astray in regard to Jesus as if he were the Christ. We entreat you, James, to persuade all that have come to the feast of the Passover concerning Jesus. In other words, they were trying to stifle the witness of the early church. For we all have confidence in you, James, for we bear the witness as do all the people that you are just and you do not respect persons. Do you therefore persuade the multitude not to be led astray concerning Jesus? Don't follow this Jesus. That's what they wanted James to say. For the whole people and all of us also have confidence in you. Stand therefore upon the pinnacle of the temple, and from that high position you may be clearly seen, and your words may be readily heard by all the people. For all the tribes with the Gentiles also are come together on the account of Passover, and the aforesaid scribes and Pharisees therefore placed James upon the pinnacle of the temple and cried out to him and said, James, you just one in whom we all ought to have confidence for as much as the people are led astray after Jesus, the crucified one, declare to us what is the state of this Jesus. What they wanted James to do is to testify against Jesus. Somehow they missed the fact that James, the brother of our Lord, who in John 7 wasn't converted, now has been converted. <laughs> James has been saved. James is now a Christian. And James, as a Christian, only too grateful for the opportunity to stand on the pinnacle of the temple and give testimony of Jesus Christ, did so. James answered with a loud voice, why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself sits at the heaven, 
sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. And when many were fully convinced at the testimony of James, they gloried in the testimony of James and said, Hosanna to the son of David. The same scribes and Pharisees said again to one another, we've done badly in supplying such testimony to Jesus, but let us go up now and throw him down in order that they may be afraid to believe in Jesus. And they cried out saying, oh, oh, the just man is also in error. And they fulfilled the scripture written in Isaiah, let us take away the just man because he is troublesome to us. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their doings. So they went up and threw down James and said to each other, let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him for he was not killed by the fall. But he turned, knelt down and said, I entreat you, Lord God, our father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And while they were thus stoning him, one of the priests, the sons of Rechab, the son of the Rechabites, who are mentioned by Jeremiah the prophet, they cried out saying, cease, what do ye? The just one prayeth for you. And one of them who was a fuller took the club which, with, uh, which he beat out his clothes and he struck James on the head. And thus James suffered martyrdom. And they buried him on the spot by the temple and his monument still remains by the temple. He became a true witness, both to Jews and to Greeks, that Jesus is the Christ. The witness of James being repeated here by Hegesippus in the second century AD, right? Being dead, he still speaks. In other words, James, the brother of Jesus, testified of Jesus long after his death. Brothers and sisters, we're going to endure through difficulty. We're going to have to persevere through suffering. We must continue in the work. The work that we've been given to do is a work that consists of his worship and his witness. We are to sustain his worship as a church. We're to sustain his worship as a body. We're to come together on the Lord's day. We're to praise his name. We're to preach his word. We're to testify to one another. We're to fellowship together. We're, gonna, we're to take of the Lord's Supper. We're to baptize new believers. We are to sustain his worship. And brothers and sisters, we are to sustain his witness. We are to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ in a world that hates him, as lights that shine in a dark place, as flames atop the lampstand, supplied by the oil of God's spirit. The Lord's preservation of his people through trial is a means through which God himself is glorified. The Lord's preservation of his people through suffering is a means through which the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. It's a means by which the gloating of our enemies is silenced and brought to nothing. It is the means through which we enter into glory. Like the witness of the Lord himself at his death. Think about that testimony of the Lord's death. The centurion who stood by and witnessed the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he stood at the foot of the cross and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. He witnessed his death and testified of Jesus Christ. His witness, the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ continues. It continues. His witness continues today. What happens in the supper when we take the supper together? We proclaim his death until he comes. In the supper, we proclaim his death. The world, this world may attempt to silence God's witnesses, but they cannot. These two, dead in the streets of that city, which is called Sodom and Egypt, are brought to life. Breath enters them, and they are caught up into victory. We are invincible until God is through with us, until he is through with his testimony upon this earth, and he judges those who dwell upon the earth, and he ushers his own into heavenly glory. It is the enemies of God who are silenced. Revelation 11, chapter seven, uh, chapter 11, verse seven. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. That doesn't imply defeat. That doesn't imply defeat. It simply foreshadows the glory of the Lord in triumph, a glory which we'll see in verses, uh, through verse 13. Right? The proclamation of Christ on the cross. It is finished. That is not a cry of defeat. That is a proclamation of victory. The work has been accomplished. The church is measured, verses one and two. The church is sealed. 
The church is empowered. The church is protected. The, the church is preserved. The church is invincible until the time that our witness comes to an end. And at that time, it will be uh, a time at which the church will be ushered into her glory. Revelation chapter 11, the saints conclude their testimony. They are killed. Their verbal testimony comes to an end. Their witness continues, as we'll see. Notice with me, though, the agent of their execution. Verse 7, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit is the one that will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. It's interesting there, and another application that we can make to our own circumstances, it's interesting there that the beast ascending, in the Greek there, is, is described using a present tense participle. The present tense used to, to convey an ongoing sense, a present reality. In other words, the beast didn't ascend. The beast is not going to ascend. The beast is ascending, right? The beast is on the ascent. He is presently ascending. He is in an ongoing ascent. That's the language there, the grammar of the original language. This speaks to the present and ongoing increasing opposition faced by the Lord's witnesses during this age. The beast is in the ascent and his witnesses are persecuted. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Persecutions of this age will increase in frequency and in severity, like birth pains on a pregnant woman, and then the end will come. The beast will be in the ascent until the end of the age. The beast is behind every instance of persecution. The beast is behind the doctrines of demons that plague the modern church. The beast is behind every bit of suffering. The beast will be in the ascent until the end of the age. The beast will be gaining influence will be gaining strength in his opposition to the gospel until the conflict reaches its climax and the people of God seemingly are overcome. And we've been introduced to this beast already. We've been introduced to this beast both in scripture, right, Daniel, and in our own experience, haven't we? <laughs> we've experienced this beast before. In Revelation chapter nine, at the sounding of the fifth trumpet, we see a demonic horde of locusts unleashed upon the earth, earth in judgment. Those aren't Black Hawk helicopters. Those are demons unleashed upon the earth. That is the beast in his ascent. That is error. That is sinful error unleashed upon the earth in judgment upon those who dwell upon the earth. Verse 11, they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Satan rules over them. We concluded from our study of that account, this is a reference to Satan. So in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, he is ascending from the pit. He makes war against the saints. He overcomes them and he kills them. This is to be expected. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Heel is going to be bruised. His head is going to be crushed. From Genesis chapter three, brothers and sisters, we are at war. We're at war. We live and labor, witness in the battlefield of this world. And we're going to see this with increasing frequency now in the chapters that follow. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 13, verse five, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Right, that time of the end, again, 1,260 days, times time and half a time, three and a half years. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and granted to him to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Revelation chapter 19, verse 19, I saw the beast the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This beast is in the ascent. He makes war with the seed of the woman and he'll make war and there will come a point in time when it's as though they have been overcome. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that so that we will not be made to stumble. He tells us that so that we know what's going on. 
right? Don't allow these fiery trials that we face cause you to stumble. Don't allow persecution. Don't allow difficulty, adversity. Don't allow tribulation to cause you to turn back from following the Lord Jesus Christ, to cause your witness to be silenced. Speak in the face of all that, like our brothers and sisters have who've gone before us. Right? Speak in the face of all that, knowing that you're going to be persecuted, knowing that your suffering gives way to glory. Our perseverance through trial will give way to final victory. And we're in good company, brothers and sisters, when we do that. Amen? We're in the com- company of a great cloud of witnesses, and we're in the company of our, our Lord Jesus Christ who went before us. Do that. Endure that suffering for the sake of his name. Take heart. We will not be silenced. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. We will not be silenced. Even our suffering, even our suffering, even if you die for the Lord Jesus Christ, your witness endures. So let's suffer well, amen? Let's suffer well. Let's go outside the camp to him bearing his reproach, surrounded by others who would profess to know him. We're to follow him as he takes up his cross, and we are to take up our cross. We're to follow him as he is headed to glory, as we will certainly enter our glory with him. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us uh, through texts like this, strengthen us through this testimony, strengthen us, Lord, as you tell us of these things, that we might be prepared to face the, com- the, the certain persecution that will come to those who desire to live godly in this present age, to those who desire to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, to your church. Help us to be prepared to face this uh, through faith, with faith in you, to face this with hope in you, with the certainty of knowing that as Jesus Christ went before us and entered into his glory, that through him, through faith in him, through his own person and work, we will suffer persecution in this age, may suffer even death in this age, and certainly enter into glory with him. Praise you and thank you for this promise given to the church, the promise given to the people. Thank you for your spirit who supplies us with oil, as it were, to face this world as witnesses for Jesus Christ. We pray that empower your church to do so. We pray that we will encourage your church to the fruit to save you. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.